Welcome to Premium Cashflow Real Estate Investing Podcast with Sakar Kauli. During this program, you will hear guest experts sharing their experiences, best practices, and market insights. We discuss investing in multifamily apartment complexes and how a busy professional can passively invest hassle-free in various opportunities. Your host, Sakar Kauli, owns millions of dollars of assets and has done thousands of value-add projects over 20 years now. So listen in for insights. Here's your host, Sakar Kauli. Welcome to another edition of Premium Cashflow Podcast. Boy, today I'm extremely delighted to welcome uh, founder and principal with RE Mentors, uh, Dave Lindahl. Uh, as uh, many of our investors and listeners may know, Dave Linnall is a authoritative figure in our uh, multifamily and commercial real estate industry in general. He has shared with a lot of, uh, he has shared uh, stage with a lot of big wigs, including a lot of, uh, you know, uh, emerging stars as well uh, of today and also things, uh, personalities such as Grant Cardone and things of that nature. So, uh, Dave himself owns uh, well over 7,000 units. He has been in, in, in the industry for several decades now. So without uh, taking much of your thunder, Dave, welcome to the show. <laughs> hey, Sakar, how's it going? Thank you. Thank you for coming on. I appreciate you taking time, Dave. Uh, so Dave, um, I know I have shared a brief of you, a uh, little bit of your bio. Uh, why don't you maybe give uh, our listeners a little bit about yourself as to how you got started and as of today, how is your company and your assets and holdings? Yeah, you know, I've, uh, through the years, I've been on different interviews and people always ask me, you know, what was it in your life that, you know, got you started? What was the turning point? Sure. And the real turning point was um, I was broke. <laughs> I was broke and I, and I wanted a better life, basically. Sure. I'd been in a rock and roll band, uh, left the band when I was 24 and I uh, was looking for something to do. I started a landscaping company uh, that turned into a construction company. And then I bought a uh, late night get rich in real estate course, uh, Charles Carlton Sheets. Oh uh, boy. <laughs> I, I absolutely know Carlton Sheets, Ron Legrand were the names. And in fact, uh, it's, it's very interesting you mentioned that because Carlton Sheets course was the one that got me started back in 2001. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I bought the first one and then I put it on the shelf like a lot of people do. And then there was the new improved edition like six or eight months later. Uh-huh. I got that. And that one I opened, fortunately. <laughs> yep. And I think the catalyst in there, the company going was it said, go to real estate investment groups in your area mm-hmm. and just notice there are people like you that are doing this and you can too. Sure. And that's what I did. I went to those groups and I saw people that talked like me, looked like me, acted like me, that were as broke as me or, <laughs> or were at one time as broke as me, but now we're doing really well. And I realized at that time I can do this. You know, when you can see other people doing it, you know, that's when I realized I can do this too. Absolutely. You, you said that so correctly, Dave, that and I have also uh, believed and said many times uh, at this show that uh, it is the networking element. It is the people element that, you know, when you see p- other people doing it, I think there's something convincing about it that says that, hey, if other people are doing it, 
uh, they are no different than, or perhaps sometimes you always say that, hey, I think I am better than a lot of those people and why, I, why I, there is no reason that why I cannot do it. So uh, very good. So uh, Dave, um, let's go right into uh, some of the great topics that we could talk about today. You know, knowing your experience and things like that, I know you are an authoritative figure on uh, emerging markets. Your book uh, for all our listeners is a authoritative figure on uh, all that uh, trends of, you know, what the emerging markets are, what are the some of the telltale signs that investors should be looking for so that, you know, you want to enter a little bit ahead as the market is improving. Could you maybe share your thesis on how you see it now as far as emerging markets go? Yeah, so <clears throat> there's a couple of things there. Let me just explain uh, the four uh, different phases of a market cycle, and that brings sure. us into emerging markets. So I learned after my first cycle, I, I made a lot of money in Brockton, Massachusetts, buying small properties, three to six unit deals. After about three years, I owned about 40 of them. Mm -hmm. And, and I, my cash flow was huge. My equity, I had become a millionaire, most of it on paper. And I thought, wow, you know, uh, I started learning about market cycles. And I realized that if I don't do something to move these money into other properties or cash out, then I'm going to lose this money, this equity. Sure. Um, so I started learning more and, and, and more about uh, market cycles and what moves markets and, and the fact that the United States as a whole is not a market, but it's, it's broken down into smaller markets. Each city is a market and then within those cities are submarkets. Sure. Mm -hmm. So I learned that the two catalysts of a market changing through the four phases of a market cycle was job growth, job growth and household formation. Sure. So the four phases of market cycle are a buyer's one to, to a buyer's two into a seller's market one to a seller's market two. Sure. Um, and now, so a market starts to, um, uh, the precursor of creating momentum on a market is, is job announcements. So a city will be in decline period and then the government will do something inside that city that will incentivize businesses to come there. They'll announce that they're coming. And then the locals who have been through different market cycles will realize, okay, the market's going to change. Yeah, there's still be maybe some downside, but now that downside risk is limited because of the new jobs coming in. So then the market will eventually bottom out, and it usually bottoms out when the, when the, when the construction starts happening at these new companies. Now, when we talk about job growth, we're talking about 500, the announcements of 500 or more jobs for a company, and then that, you know, multiple times. So sure. usually when we start hearing that, we, you know, when all of a sudden the, our resources start coming in and say, hey, you know, Phoenix has, you know, or for instance, Dallas, when uh, Fidelity moved to Dallas with 1,500 jobs, uh, or when Volkswagen moved over to um, Chattanooga with 10,000 jobs, or Boeing to Charleston, 10,000 jobs. All those are market movers because each job that comes in has what's called the multiplier effect. Sure. Uh, so you have the main job and then you have the support jobs, you know, the butcher, the baker, the candlestick maker, the Absolutely. jobs. Um, so, so my first market was Montgomery, Alabama. Interesting. Uh, and yep, the, they were building a Kia plant down there, 5,000 new jobs. Mm -hmm. It had a multiplier of three, which is very, very low, but that meant another 15,000 new jobs coming in. Mm -hmm. And then it had an extra kicker, which was a barrier to entry. Uh, uh, Montgomery surrounded by floodplains, can't build in those floodplains. So therefore the supply was going to remain the same while demand increased. So that's sure. a good recipe for a good market. Awesome. Awesome. Yeah. So hold on. So then usually, <clears throat> I don't mean to interrupt you, but I just- No, no, you're fine. You're fine. <laughs> so usually, you know, at the construction period, now the market phases from a buyer's market phase one, the downside of the cycle into a buyer's market phase two, which is the start of the upside of the cycle. So construction workers start coming in, they start absorbing the oversupply in the marketplace. When 
the, um, they absorb enough oversupply, what will start to happen is rents will start to rise after uh, the first time, after a number of years of being stagnant. That's the, that's the big green light in a buyer's market phase too. That's, the, that's when the national investors start coming into a marketplace because they know that this market is now gonna go through a period of three to seven years of growth. So they come in, the jobs, uh, they start building these jobs, the jobs start, um, the people that are gonna fulfill these jobs start coming in. And then eventually the market's gonna peak out when, when uh, peak job fulfillment happens and then jobs start to go down again. So we're looking for job growth and we're looking for job decline or, or job stagnation. And then that's our sign to get out of a market, move into another market, or if it's in our own backyard, it's a sign to change our strategy and either to change it into certainly cash out of all the properties that might be risk. Like, you know, there's four types of properties, A, B, C, and D. We sure. want to cash out of our C properties. D's we own them. We don't really want to own those, but our C's. And then keep our stable properties, then just be flipping other properties until the market again goes through the cycle. So, you know, I've been uh, the type of person that once I learned this and started doing it successfully, at one time, I was in over 18 different markets with over 8,000 units. Uh, wow. <laughs> wow. So. That's, that's incredible, uh, Dave. Now, uh, let's, uh, I want to, you know, maybe uh, focus the attention uh, of the show, Dave, on, uh, you know, today's investors, uh, you know, who are trying to do the deals. The, obviously, the markets are pretty hot. Uh, I mean, it is pretty competitive out there and things like that. And I know uh, you have stated the trifecta of your um, equation of multifamily being like, let's say, uh, a decent cash on cash. Uh, I have it right here, a 12% cash on cash, uh, 1.6 uh, DSCR, and also a 8% uh, cap rate or higher. Yeah, uh, you know. Uh, you no, know we call that, don't you? Uh, right, absolutely. I mean, it's 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 a trifecta, as as we say it, right? Uh, we call that the Trinity. The I Trinity, correct. Holy, but I took the word "holy" off because you know when you're first starting out, for you usually analyze like twenty or thirty deals before you hit one that hits the actual Trinity, and this is those numbers make for a good conservative deal. Sure. And when sure. that happens, the sky opens up, the sun the sun comes out, and you hear this. <laughs> it's truly a beautiful experience because you now have a deal that you know is going to work. Sure, sure. No, and, and where I'm going with that question, uh, Dave, is that uh, based on today's experiences and a lot of deals that we underwrite, uh, it, it is getting harder to uh, perhaps achieve that higher of a uh, DSCR and things like that. Of course, the interest rates are so lucrative right now. And <laughs> so, you know, it's pretty much, uh, uh, you know, given that, Brokers are looking at these things. Uh, the prices are obviously pretty higher. So what would you say to all of this, uh, Dave, that should we be uh, trying to you know, steer towards achieving uh, that trinity or should we maybe perhaps flex uh, some elements out of it? Well, here's the deal. You know, I always train uh, my students and, and, and I myself, I'm always a conservative investor. So sure. all of my deals meet that criteria. Now, the question you just asked is a very common question in a tight market. You know, should I adjust a trinity for the market? Sure. You don't. You don't look at adjusting a trinity. You look at adjusting your relationships because this mm. is a relationship business. Sure. And although, you know, we're, we're in a seller's market too in a lot of areas, and, and now we're starting to the decline phase in the buyer's market one, mm -hmm. you know, and there's not as many deals out there as there are in the start of an emerging phase or throughout the emerging markets. Mm -hmm. But that just means with less deals, you have to have better relationships because sure. you're going to get your good deals from your good relationships with your brokers or in this particular period with the COVID opportunity, uh, you're gonna actually see more deals come in through direct mail as well. 
So sure. between those two, but anytime I have a student struggling, I always ask them, you know, tell me the quality of your relationship. What was the, what was the last um, uh, conversation you had with your real estate broker? Were you talking about real estate or were you talking about other things? Mm-hmm. If you're talking about real estate, then that's not the type of relationship we're looking for. Because the most important thing in a good relationship with a broker is the commonality that you have with that broker outside of real estate. The things that you're both passionate about, that you share interest in. And those are the things that you talk about. And that's how you build a friendship. And, and friends want to do business with friends. And that's how you uh, build a business in multifamily investing. A really good business. Sure, sure. It is a relationship uh, game, as we always say it, right? Uh, and also, Dave, uh, speaking of, uh, you know, staying on that topic of markets and submarkets and things like that, um, the Trinity equation that you always uh, sort of profess to your, uh, you know, students and other folks, right? Uh, 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 should that be more focused on a uh, sort of a primary, secondary market, or is it more uh, behooves the tertiary markets of sort. What 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 is has been your experience uh, in general about that? That's any deal across the board, basically. You know, mm-hmm. primary, secondary. In, in the primary markets, it's probably harder to uh, to meet deals that meet the Trinity because you've got more competition with institutions and and people from outside this country sure. that want deals in those quality markets. Mm-hmm. Um, you can do more deals in the secondary markets. The tertiary markets, you know, you've got to be careful. You just got to make sure it, the lower the, the population, the, the smaller the market, the smaller your buying pool on the back end. Mm-hmm. So you just got to be careful on the tertiary markets that you have a good supply. It's near a, a major city. Um, so you have a good supply of buyers that are going to buy that property from you. Sure. And at this sport of multifamily, uh, Dave, is a team sport. You have so many elements that we are looking at as far as, you know, let's say the deal finding, the underwriting aspects of it. And perhaps once you have the deal under the belt, you have the entire gamut of things as far as due diligence goes, financing goes and things like that. Uh, could you share your advice as to what you advise to the students as to how you can establish a team and get going? Like what are some of the primary elements you need in your team first? There's, there's two types of teams. There's the team that you're going to be doing business within the marketplace and then potentially the partnership team that you might have. You know, when you're finding people that have uh, that, that, that their strengths are your weaknesses, you know, if you don't want to do this alone, which I've had partners in just about all the deals that I've done. Sure. Um, and I'm always looking for people that, again, you know, that, that are good at the things that I'm not good at. Mm-hmm. Um, so that team you can, you know, you just find by you go to your real estate investment groups, you network. Uh, with people. And then, you know, if you get a, if you trust your gut always because partnerships, if they go bad, it's very messy. I've been in a couple of messy partnerships. Mm-hmm. Um, and you just have good, good uh, documentation going into the partnership, good partnership agreements. Now on the other side, mm-hmm. you know, you've got to, you need a team to run these properties. You need a good management company that's going to uh, manage that property. Um, you're going to need a good attorney that's going to be doing legal work on the property that know, from that local area. Um, you're going to need a good pro- um, a contractors, um, you're going to need good uh, people on site uh, to do the job. You're going to need a good insurance agent. You're going to, you're going to need, um, you know, all of these different people are going to be on their team. They're all going to have this particular job, a good lending, um, a lending broker. Mm-hmm. You know, all these people that will be your eyes and ears and will do the jobs that you really don't want to be doing. You could do, mm-hmm. you know, you could be a jack of all trades, but if you're a sure. jack of all trades and not focused on getting more deals, which is as an investor, that's your primary focus is getting more deals. Um, if you're trying to be a jack of all trades, you're not going to be doing as many deals and you may not reach your financial goals. 
Absolutely, absolutely. And speaking of, uh, you know, typically the, uh, you know, the property management aspect of things, uh, Dave, are you, uh, I mean, I have heard opinions both ways, whether to, you know, keep the property management in house when you have a certain scale, or I have heard the other side of the spectrum where, um, you know, sometimes you see this notion that, hey, do not keep property management in-house until you have more than, uh, let's say, 3,000 units and things of that nature. Uh, what would be your advice uh, regarding how you go about, uh, um, you know, in-house property management or perhaps a third-party property management? Yeah, so typically there's a couple of routes that people take. First of all, we tell people don't manage your own properties, but people will start off managing their own properties until they realize that it's not a good game to play. Uh, but, you know, the, the best route to take is to do third party at the beginning. The problem with third party is when you make decisions, your decisions aren't carried out instantly the way you want to. And sometimes they're not carried out at all, unfortunately. Sure. That's a party mm -hmm. with third party uh, mm -hmm. property management. And you lose control over some of the financials as well. At 2,500 units, that's typically when you're going to take an assessment and decide whether or not you're going to take it in-house or go third party. That's a decision that, that's every individual's business decision. You know, if you've got somebody on your team that's really good at this, that has experience, um, then that's something that you might consider going 25. And if you're going to take it in-house at 2,500 units, you know, you're going to hire an asset manager or a, a um, somebody to oversee, like a president of the, the property management company. Sure. You should be hiring somebody that has at least 1,000, 5,000 uh, 5, units. And if you're smart, you want to go to wherever your goal is. You know, when we were at 2,500 units and we decided to take it in-house, um, we actually hired somebody that had experience managing 12,000 units. And we paid them a whole bunch of more money than we would have paid the person that had the just a 7,000 unit experience. Sure. But that's where we wanted to go. So we were paying for the person, you know, to get us to where we wanted to go there. I'll tell you, you know, it's a, and, and I made a deal with my partner, you know, when he said, you know, we should take management in-house, it'd be more cost efficient, yada, yada, yada. And I, my, my argument was, okay, but I'm not involved at all because I, I'm very bad at details. You know, that I hate property management. I did manage my own properties when I was smaller with three to six units. I started taking on, you know, other people's properties and I realized, oh, this is a pain in the ass. This is like, this is the worst mistake I made. Uh, so I said, I will be the advisor, you know, over the management company, but I will not be involved in day to day. And he was good with that. And he became the CEO of the management company. And he, and he did a good job. Awesome. That awesome. Worked out. Thank you for that great advice. Uh, now, Dave, speaking of deal structure and whether you do a preferred return or not and things like that, uh, what is your preference or what would you advise to the students? Like, you know, you hear both uh, sides of the argument, whether uh, you, we should, uh, you know, uh, write the deals with a, let's say, a 7%, 8% prep and things like that, or you hear other side of the coin, whether you can just do something like a JV type of structure that you give out, let's say 70 to 80% of the deal to the passive investors and the general partners uh, keep the remaining. Uh, what, what are some of your uh, thoughts around that? Uh, we typically, we, I know from my experience uh, that if you offer an 8% PREF, now not an 8% guarantee that will be accumulated if you can't meet the, the, the hurdle, sure. but an 8% PREF where they get their 8% first before the, uh, the, the partners do, um, that we find uh, appeals to a lot of, a lot of investors. Hmm. So 8% is kind of like the, um, you know, that's, that's where the wallet's open. 7% is good. 6% is, it's a, it's a different type of investor. It's a high sure. net worth uh, individual. It's a pension fund. They're the, and it's going to be a high quality deal. Sure. 8% mm -hmm. is good. 
an 8% sure. profit. And then right. typically we'll do a 60-40 um, a back end. No, and then typically we'll do a 60-40 split and then mm -hmm. a 50-50 on the back end. Sure, sure. And what would that hurdle look like going from uh, 50 to, I mean, rather 60-40 to 50-50? What, what does that look like? Uh, meaning, is there an IRR based and things like that? Yeah, well, typically we like to bring our deals to the, to the table at an 18% or above IRR. We, sometimes we can go down as low as 16%, depending on the, what type of a value add mm -hmm. is involved. Uh, but we like to get out on the street um, with the 8% pref and then with the average annual rate of return, somewhere between 16 and 18 or plus. You know, anytime you hit 20, 20 or more, you hit a home run. <laughs> That's true. That's true. Now, uh, speaking of value adds and repositioning the properties and things like that, Dave, uh, what are some of the thoughts that instantly come to your mind? Like, let's say we purchase a deal. Uh, and of course, this, these things can certainly change uh, from deal to deal. Every asset is different. Some things near some asset needs, you know, a lot more exterior improvements, or perhaps some other need a lot more interior improvements and things like that. But in, if, if, I, if we were to kind of step back and uh, just kind of, uh, you know, talk about execution of this value add uh, plan and, you know, keeping the budgets tight and things like that. What would be your general advice? Like, should uh, folks approach, start doing the exterior improvement first so that you create an instant impact uh, in the community? What, what are some of your thoughts around that? Uh, yes, that's, that's exactly what I would do. Uh, and let me, uh, from my experience of investing for, since 1996, um, I always evaluated my deals at the end of the year to see if they matched my goal when I, mm -hmm. when I sold them. Mm -hmm. And through the years, I realized that, you know, there's two different types of deals. There's momentum plays that cash flow closing, and then there's repositionings that are sure. below 85% occupancy. Mm -hmm. um, so of, of, I, I found out that I made my most amount of money on the deals that were like a tweener. It, was in, it wasn't a momentum play in the sense that it came with value adds. It came with the fact that um, ownership was doing a bad job. And, and this had, if the marketplace was at, say, 94%, this property was in the high 80s. Mm -hmm. So, you know, management had taken a back seat. But it was good because it hadn't lowered below the 85% threshold, the equilibrium threshold that the lenders look at. Mm -hmm. um, so it wasn't a full repositioning. So you could take this falling knife and grab it and turn it around. And then you benefit from the, the value add of the lower rents because as it cycled down, it had to start lowering its rent to attract tenants to come in because the good ones were leaving. Um, and you also get the value add of um, uh, increased occupancy. So I realized that, you know, when I hit these, this, this is the recipe, I'll give it to you right now. And actually this is part of the COVID recipe as well. Mm -hmm. Interesting. Because there's a lot of these properties that are going to be entering the marketplace and some of them already have. And it's because, uh, you know, we just went through this big up cycle and there's a lot of owners that bought and were buying throughout this up cycle. And, you know, uh, an, an up cycle mass, a lot of mistakes. Okay. Sure. Sure. Because as it goes up, you know, the cash flow is still coming in, the value is still coming in and you still look like a genius regardless. And, and investors tend to get sloppy too. And they start, they, they tend to get a little bit greedy. So when all of a sudden the pandemic hit, nobody expected it. Those people that didn't buy right or who were not asset managing, right. Sure. They became exposed. All right. And they started the, the, the amount of funds that they had coming in, you know, became less and less and they stopped doing the repairs on the properties or the maintenance because they couldn't afford to do it. They started losing their good tenants 
And after you start losing your good tenants, you can't replace them with other good tenants because the place doesn't look that great anymore. We're about nine months now into COVID. Oh, actually, we're getting pretty close to a year into COVID now. Absolutely. You know, and this this is ripe right now because you you know it, the, the good tenants waited a little bit of time, four, five, six months before they realized this isn't going to change. This ownership's in trouble. You know, I'm going to move to a place where there's good stable ownership. So as they leave, now you've got lesser quality tenants coming in. Okay, and those lesser quality tenants don't tend to pay their rent all the time on time, or they tend to not pay sometimes as well. As they're struggling to try to get more tenants in, they start lowering the rents to try to get more tenants in, they actually start to, to lower, lower the quality more, and it starts this, this downward death cycle, I call it, um, in a property, and then they can't do the repairs, you know, and then it gets to a point where they can't even meet the mortgage payment. Sure. And as occupancy uh, goes down, if you can grab it in the, in the high 80s, you know, and then turn that property around, the types of properties we look for that are in this death spiral. Mm -hmm. And I want everybody that's listening to write this down because this is the recipe uh, to take advantage of COVID right now. Um, it is a B property, a B asset in a B area mm -hmm. that is between 85 and 90% occupied where the current occupancy in the marketplace is above 90. Mm -hmm. okay? We're looking to do interior and exterior repairs of anywhere between three to 5,000 per door. Okay, not a lot per door. Okay. And that's if you take, a, you take into consideration everything uh, you know, that needs to be done in the exterior. No structural repairs, no, no roof jobs, no exterior sidings. Um, just upgrades is what we're looking to do. We're looking to upgrade sure. the parking lot, the signage, the leasing aid, uh, office, the common areas, and then um, upgrade the, as we turn the units, upgrade the units, but not much. Uh, because this property is in pretty good shape, but just, it's just downtrodden, as they sure. say. <laughs> so, and as you were alluding to, the first thing we do is we start popping the exterior of the property. We put a lot of money into landscaping because that's the first thing people are going to notice. The, the people living there and the people driving by or the people coming in to potentially lease. We'll do the landscaping, the driveway, the signage itself, the leasing office, because that's where the decision's being made. Sure. And the, 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 the people that were leaving, okay, the good tenants now realize that, hey, this is a new owner. And of course, you've sent out the flyers, new ownership, we care, blah, blah, blah. Sure. Um, and then it's like, okay, so you stop the, the carnage of people leaving, all mm -hmm. right? Uh, and any lease that you sign at that time, it's only a six month lease because you're gonna start bringing that, that property back up to market with its leases. So you sign it for six months. And then, you know, when that comes up, you bring it back up to market. As the new people start coming in from the neighborhood uh, to lease up, they lease up at the higher rents. When the people start to churn after three months and they see that you've done all the exterior repairs. Now, here's another key thing. The exterior repairs shouldn't take longer than three to four months to complete. All right, so that's why Valuable. we're looking. <laughs> yep, it, it's always it's just you know it's just the, the small it's the, um, the the smaller repairs. So um, now you've got that done. The people living there can see. Wow, you know they're really turning. You you're looking at the maintenance requests because usually there's a whole bunch of maintenance requests that have gone undone. Sure. You get all of them uh, done. Now the tenants are happy. Did you know? Um, that the number one reason, Sakara, that people leave a property is not because of a rent increase. It's because that the maintenance requests haven't been done. And Couldn't they think, agree more. Couldn't agree more. <laughs> and they think ownership doesn't care about them. If ownership doesn't care about them, they don't care about ownership. And they're going to go someplace where they care. So that brings me to another point was always try to create a good community within your, your apartment community. Uh, so well, one more thing, as I finish up, so uh, we've got the, at three to four months, all the repairs are done. Now we're, now we're just raising rents. We're bringing that occupancy back at the market at the higher rents. Now within 12 to 18 months, we've got that property running smoothly at the higher rents. We've increased the value of the property. Now we can refinance it or resell. Awesome. And, that is, and, and this is what we call, and this, before even COVID happened, 
I coined the term micro repositioning because that was a tweener property. Those were the deals I did between the momentum plays and the repositionings. They were micro repositionings. And those were the deals that we started looking for on a regular mm. basis, but before COVID, then all of a sudden we look in, oh my gosh, COVID is creating a ton of micro repositionings out there. And this is huge. You can change your financial future around in a very short period of time, investing in these type of properties with the recipe that I just gave. Incredible, incredible, uh, Dave. You just made a lot of money to our listeners if they follow this same recipe. If they recipe. follow, that's the big thing. If uh, they take action. If they follow that recipe. And I have a couple of follow-ups there, uh, Dave, that as we are into kind of maybe let's let's assume a sort of a flag end of the COVID pandemic. I know the vaccines are uh, currently being administered and they will continue for a foreseeable uh, few months into coming into the fruition, right? But the COVID pandemic has led to some other problems as far as the courts are backed up, there is higher delinquency yeah. and, you know, sort of that CapEx tsunami, if we call it, uh, and things like that, right? So, where I'm going with this discussion, Dave, is that uh, are we at the end yet or have we seen the fuller picture yet? Meaning tenants, uh, I mean, obviously uh, all the eviction moratoriums that we have out there right now, uh, that's a huge problem right now is that going into a market or a sub-market, it's kind of difficult to analyze that, uh, okay, you may be seeing an asset that's perhaps 87 or 90% occupied, uh, but we do not have a full grasp of how bad that uh, economic delinquency is ongoing. What would you say to some of that, uh, those things, you know? Well, it's really important uh, that you analyze a rent roll properly because that's going to tell you who's paying and who's not. Um, and then you back up your analyzation of the rent roll by the actual receipts that go into the bank. So you want to see the last three months bank statements mm -hmm. uh, and make sure they match up with the rent roll. Because if somebody's going to try to deceive you, a seller, that's what they're going to try to do. Now, the other way you can protect yourself is when you go into contract on one of these deals, um, you can go in there with the purchase price based on the capitalization rate of the last profit and loss statement prior to closing. I so, therefore, yeah, so therefore, if the, if the numbers are going down, and the bank's going to do this too, if the number's going down and you don't do what I just said, uh, the bank's going to say, okay, you're going to have to come up with a whole bunch of more money for closing because this deal's not stabilized. Sure. But if, if you do, then the, the price, if you do it by the, um, the cap rate, then the price automatically is lowered. And a sell, if a seller doesn't want to do that, it's typically because they're, they're hiding stuff and they know the operations are shaky. And that's not mm -hmm. a deal you want to be in anyways. Sure, sure, sure. That, that's a very good point. Like trying to, you know, price your purchase relative to what the PL, latest PNL uh, would come out to. So, uh, but I'll tell you, but that's why we're looking at B properties too, because the struggles are happening in the C properties, not as much in the B properties. Very true, very true. Uh, and speaking of all the COVID pandemic and how the asset management has uh, kind of driven us now, uh, Dave, is that we have to be extremely tighter and looking at the numbers and things like that. Uh, could you maybe share, uh, Dave, within your portfolio as to what are some of the specific uh, strategies or perhaps uh, some new elements that you have started, uh, you know, kind of looking through a microscope uh, uh, and things like that? Could you share some thoughts around uh, how things, what new things you have done as far as uh, how COVID pandemic has shaped that asset management in with you? Yeah, well, you know, what we've done is we've, we've really evaluated our rent rules and determined who, who people are working for, and mm -hmm. then we determine the risk of employment. Um, but, you know, e even when we determine the risk and we have an understanding of it, the risk is still there. It can't be mitigated. The way we mitigate the risk is by finding out which, um, uh, um, which programs are available. 
you know, to the tenants and, and leading those tenants towards those programs. Um, I've got a property in St. Louis uh, right now where we've got 10 tenants not paying, you know, and they're just hiding. Behind, it's a C plus property. Uh, they're hiding behind the, you know, the eviction moratoriums. Mm -hmm. But the manager being, you know, being an aggressive uh, that, the manager that wants to perform, she scoured for different uh, types of programs out there where the government was going to help. And last month, she got us a check for 26000 Awesome. For mm -hmm. all the back rents. Yeah. So we're really happy about that. So it's out there. You just have to, someone's got to do the research to find it. Incredible. Incredible. Now, speaking of equity raising and capital raising, Dave, um, what is your advice uh, for folks who are starting out or, uh, you know, they are in this phase, right? Uh, do you advise that uh, folks should establish a, a thought leadership platform such as, let's say, a podcast like this or have a blog of sorts? Uh, what are some of your experiences around all of this? That seems to be the going trend. You know, a lot of people are becoming um, uh, known throughout the industry with podcasts, with blogs, uh, social media. Uh, and it's working. It's working pretty effectively. Uh, but the most important thing is to, you know, you've got to, you got to know what you're talking about. You've sure. got to be educated and, and you got to put a good team around you. You put those things in place and you build a good business and, and you'll do well. So yeah, I think podcasts are very, very effective right now. Sure, sure. Thank you. And, and it's very interesting, Dave, uh, that I have seen like a, lar a large part of my career has been, you know, into single family houses, we buy and hold and kind of manage internally and things like that. Uh, heavy experience. But as soon as, uh, you know, I started looking into specifically the larger multifamily and you start to look at the uh, capital raising and the equity raising side of the house, you feel like, boy, I mean, you know, friends and family can go so far and you need that sort of a platform where you can broadcast and, you know, like uh, have a, a sort of a leadership authority over these things. And I think a podcast like this, or perhaps a lot of articles and blogs and things like that definitely come into, uh, uh, you know, very hand, uh, handy. So very yeah, good. Thing. Let me just, let me just add to that. The sure. most important thing in raising funds is face-to-face -face contact, because you can have your podcast, you can have your blogs, you can, um, you know, you can do your direct mail pieces or, or whatever, but until you get face to face with an investor and they can look you in the eye and they can determine through, their, through the, the way you're looking back at them, whether or not they trust you, they're going to trust their gut. Sure. That's when you'll get them to invest with you. So everything's great. It's almost like, you know, you get this big funnel out there, you start bringing them in, but you've got to have a strategy where you're going to get face to face, zoom to zoom on a telephone call, something, but that's the way you close uh, people to uh, invest in your deals. Absolutely. Thank you, Dave. And speaking of your experience, Dave, uh, I know as you started way back uh, in the 90s, uh, how, how has that, uh, you know, equity raising piece uh, was a challenge for you or, you know, how have you shifted yeah. into doing different uh, new things uh, as, as you did, you know, many more larger deals? Oh, you know, when I first started, I was just uh, I was just looking for a partner to get into my first deal with because I was broke. Uh, but then, you know, I, I didn't really look at raising uh, money until I started going into the bigger properties and realized that I had changed my goals from a thousand units to 10,000 units. I mean, yeah, 10,000 units and realized I wasn't going to get there. I was funding my own deals at one point. Um, I wasn't going to get there without partners. So I started bringing partners on and uh, I started doing what, you know, what during times of non-COVID, I started going to real estate investment groups. I started going to business groups. I started talking to people and letting them know what I was doing and letting them know that I took on partners. The biggest change that came with me is I hated 
trying to raise uh, funding or trying to get partners to go into my DLs. It felt like I was asking for money, hmm. you know? And when I realized that, you know, instead of asking for money, if I would just go and talk about the opportunity that I had, you know, and what I did and those people that were interested, they'd raise their hand anyways and they would gravitate towards me. I realized that that was the best approach and it made hmm. me a lot more comfortable. And uh, I've been doing that ever since. So we find our partners just by telling people what we do. Um, and then if they're interested, they will actually close themselves with the questions that they ask, instead of giving like an elevator pitch or, you know, a big full presentation, you know, I've learned that let them ask their questions, handle the questions and objections, uh, objections, and let like any good salesperson, you let the person tell you how they want to be sold and then sell them that way. Sure. And that's sure. what you're going to do. That, that's a very, that's a very good point. And Dave, going back to your story as well, that when was that uh, sort of, what was that inflection point for you where you realized that, gosh, I got to be in the larger multifamily? Uh, I mean, I know you said you started with houses and some duplexes and things like that. When did that big shift uh, came to you and you, you decided uh, to go into larger multifamily? So I'm three years in and I realized that I've got a few million dollars in equity in my smaller properties and I'm going to either lose it if I don't cash out or go to another market. So that's when I started looking for other markets and I found Montgomery, Alabama and I found a 40 unit down there. And I was really looking to buy more three to six units because that's what I was comfortable with. I was afraid to do anything bigger, mm -hmm. uh, but I had so much equity in my 1031 exchanges that I got a 40 and I thought, wow, you know, that, that wasn't too bad. And then I got an 80. And I realized, hey, you know, this is actually easier than doing a three unit, doing an 80s usually. And then I went to a 350. <laughs> and I realized that that was much easier because all the people were so much more professional that I was dealing with because they, they all got paid as part of the deal. The broker got a percentage of, um, you know, the, the deal size, the, the lending broker got a percentage of the loan, the management company got a percentage of the revenues, the, even the, uh, the people that, that did the uh, property inspection, it was per door. So you got like the best of the best, the bigger the property you bought. So it in the fine, you know, the finance guy, I mean, he was right there to help you out because big deal, big, big money in his pocket. And uh, yeah, it was so much easier doing that bigger deal than it was those three unit deals. And, and I was so afraid to do them. But then when I got, I, I realized this and I, I, get, I became very comfortable doing those bigger deals. Incredible, incredible. Couldn't agree more. Uh, Dave, a couple of follow-up questions. Uh, and I know you are short on time and I appreciate it. Uh, as you have seen, uh, you know, many students and things like that throughout your career, what stands out as the students who achieve a lot of success uh, and students who are, you know, uh, who perhaps do not achieve that much? What, what, what are some of your experiences around that? I'll tell you what it is. It's a decision that you're going to do it. It's a decision that you're going to do it regardless of, of how many times you get knocked down. You know, there's a uh, Japanese have a saying, fall down six times, get up, get up seven. You know, uh, the real reason that people aren't as successful as they should be, you know, we've got a proven system that we've been teaching now since 2002. We know it works as long as the person following it works. And the reason the people following it sometimes don't work is because they're, they don't get out of their comfort zone. Sure. And that is the biggest reason that people don't become successful is the fact that they want to be successful. They want a whole lot more, but they're doing okay right now. Even if they're not happy, they're still doing okay. And when they start going outside of their comfort zone, they snap back in and they go out and they snap back in. If, if anybody listening right now can take this advice and that is to be comfortable being uncomfortable, then you'll be very successful. The problem is you become uncomfortable and then you rationalize why you don't really need it right now. You still want it in the future, but you don't need it right now. And that's when, uh, that's when failure 
Yeah. Absolutely, absolutely. I think get comfortable being uncomfortable uh, is an incredible mantra. So yeah. one last question, uh, Dave, as your career has progressed and you shifted through several decades uh, and- you know, get a challenge, a challenge. No, I'm not at all. <laughs> several, my eyes. several challenges you have had as well, right? What, what are some of the best advice or things that you remember uh, sort of on an everyday basis uh, that kind of keeps you well-disciplined and kind of carries you, uh, you know, to that next level? And that could be, you know, sort of the, some of the challenges that you're trying to resolve as well on a daily basis. W what are some of those key elements uh, of your mind that you keep uh, always uh, sort of uh, thoughtful about those things? I've learned to be disciplined and I've learned to routine because when you get into a routine, then, you know, you, you just do it. Like I wake up in the morning and I, the first thing I do is I, I work out, you know, and then I, I plan my day uh, from there. So I discovered that the, the biggest thing I discovered was that life is a mind hack, right? And the world is trying to throw at you all these negative things, you know, and it's very easy to get sucked into negativity. Sure. But if you can hack yourself so that you're not sucked into that negativity and you're, and you're doing the things that will move you forward instead of keeping you stagnant or moving you behind, and that's really difficult to do, as a matter of fact. It's really going to be a mindset. So what I do is I feed myself something positive every day. I feed myself, you know, information as to how to beat my mind at its own game because that's what it is. Your mind, unfortunately, sure. you know, is a negative machine. So I read books like uh, The Unbeatable Mind, um, Super Brain, all these different things. And I always feed myself like Tony Robbins, he's awesome. Uh, I feed myself all these different things and that's what keeps me propelling forward. That's actually what changed my life. When I came out of that rock and roll band and I was, I was looking for what I was gonna do, you know, and I started my, my landscaping company and went into construction and started real estate. But my life didn't really start to change until I started listening to guys like Earl Nightingale, Lead the Field. Uh, Tony Robbins back then, his first book was Awaken the Giant Within. You know, another book, Raise the Bar, um, The Magic of Thinking Big. When I started feeding myself that stuff, that's when I started becoming successful. Incredible, incredible. Uh, I think, uh, Dave, I cannot thank you enough. Uh, I think all the advice uh, that you have shared. Hey, let me offer a free book, can I? Oh, yeah, sure. Go ahead, please. Yeah, we got a, we've got a free book on how to start a, a multifamily business and a, and a, a five mini series training. It's all free. If you'd like to get it, get it, go to davetoday.com, davetoday.com, and uh, we'll be happy to send you a copy. Awesome, awesome. davetoday.com, viewers and listeners, please log on. Uh, Dave is an incredible resource. He has had so many decades of experience and done so many deals and seen ups and downs of the market. I think every word and every sort of sentences that you have said, I think needs to be paused, uh, went back and looked upon into the context of how you have said. I think the points that you said, uh, Dave, there about how the COVID pandemic has shaped the kind of properties, the submarkets, you start looking at these deals, some of the nuances there as far as the occupancy and how you can reposition and the practical aspects as far as, you know, how you can execute that value at plan. Those are all incredible ones. I think for viewers and listeners, if you want to take a few takeaways, start being uncomfortable uh, and you will achieve and get to the next level. So it's been a pleasure, Dave. I would look forward to having you on another future podcast yeah. as well. Uh, you are a wealth of knowledge, so I cannot thank you enough. Thanks, thanks for coming today. Thanks, on right. it's been a pleasure. It's great to see you again. Awesome. Thank you, Dave. Thanks for listening to Premium Cashflow Real Estate Investing Podcast. Please join us at premiumcashflow.com to sign up for weekly updates, research articles, and more. 
We will see you again for another great interview with an expert guest.